This is the true story of Maple Butterbottom. Maple Butterbottom was born in 1840 to parents Benedict and Marjorie Butterbottom. She was a child of six, and so she didn't get much attention from her parents. She spent most of her days in the cow fields, milking cows and making butter. But as she was milking the cows and making butter, she grew a bloodlust. And her father noticed something disturbing. Suddenly, cows in the cow fields started dying. Now this was the late 1800s, so civil war was happening and maybe there was mad cow disease, who knows? What, what could be killing these cows? We don't know. One thing's for sure, it was not the satanic rituals of the late 1980s. We didn't, he didn't know what was causing his cows to die in the fields so gruesomely, cut right open with their guts, goring, hanging out, decapitated. Why was, what was going on? It was utterly heinous. Eventually, her, her lust, her bloodlust for cows was not enough and it grew towards humans she wanted more it was a slippery slope mabel butterbottom eventually took her killing to humans she had now taken over her father's butter business and a rival had developed alice cremay and the rivalry was tough but something mysterious happened alice died and suddenly mabel butterbottom's butter business had taken off and there was no rivalry anymore. Police were confused by this occurrence, but couldn't draw any conclusions. Well, the police were in diary constraints for any leads. But eventually, Mabel Mabel had milked her killing for too long. She slipped up. She slipped up. She couldn't butter the cops up any longer. And they found her on a charge of selling spoiled milk, and they were able to draw the final conclusions that she had been the killer for so long. Because, you know, after killing Alice, her rival, she had become a serial killer. (laughs) (laughs) With that said, welcome to the true cross, true slash false crime game. Grab your (laughs) pens and paper, everyone. Grab your sharpened number two pencils and your erasers because this is a pop quiz. That's right. With only true or false questions. Yeah. So you've heard of true crime. We've done an episode about it. But you have never heard of false crime. And that's what we have invented. I, I don't think anyone's done this before. So this is more of a trial run for another series that we're potentially planning on starting, which is... We potentially want to start a false crime podcast. So I guess we did it wrong because we opened with, this is the true story of Maple Butterbottom. And and the idea behind the false crime story would be, this is the false, false. crime story um, of so-and-so. Yeah. So yeah. So today's episode is going to be a, sort of a trial run, but it, it's our... If you, if you also, if you haven't noticed, we like playing games. So this is going to be a game where we are going to each tell our own story. Now we have taken the time to devise our own stories and gather up some uh, real stories and then also write some fake ones. So the goal is to tell your story and then obviously see if the other person can guess if that is a true crime story or a false crime story. And you as the player can uh, join along and... Uh, 
uh, as the viewer can play along and see, as the listener you as the listener can listen and see if you can guess if they are a real story maybe you can even tell like oh i've heard this one before or you know, yeah you know just whatever so yeah that's what we so i want to go ahead today. and preface this so normally everything we do is improvised um mm-hmm. we are not planners um part of our part of what we find to be the charm at least what we find to be the charm of our podcast is that everything is just um who's lining it and it's made up and the points don't matter mm-hmm. but for today's episode so the intro of maple butter bottom completely improvised oh that was completely improvised, completely improvised. but what what happens from here on out um we did prepare ahead of time because I didn't think it was fair to play this game when <laughs> I listened to a bunch of true crime and just not. <laughs> so it would be kind of unfair for me to have a bank of true stories to tell and for James to kind of like not have any uh, context to go off of. So um, yes, these were prepared ahead of time. The other thing is, I don't know if you created any rules for yourself. We did not tell each other which sources we took from so we could potentially have taken the exact same true stories so we didn't i mean uh, because obviously we can't consult on which true stories we used Mm -hmm. because that would give it away so we could potentially be using the exact same stories and then um have nothing to fall back on um it probably would have been good to have like holly as a medium here to like look yeah that probably would have been smart but she's not here so you know yeah yeah she holly left us yeah yeah Anyway, um, <laughs> so, but I also had rules for myself that, like, I didn't want any serial killer cases mm. um, for two reasons. One, they're more popular, so you're more likely to know a serial killer case, right? And, and two, serial killers tend to be narcissistic. They tend to be serial killers because they want the attention and the fame. Mm-hmm. And I think that when we talk about serial killers, it's more important to talk about the victims and highlight the victims and celebrate. I don't necessarily know if celebrate's the right word, but pay more attention to the mm-hmm. victims than the serial killer. the murderer themselves. So anyway, I I try I made the rule for myself to, to I, avoid I serial killers. I don't think I have cases, but... any serial killers for the most part. Yeah. I might. I don't know. I don't. I don't even remember. We'll find out. <laughs> we'll find out. So anyway, <laughs> that was. I mean, that was kind of the. Other than that, it was pretty much fair game on how we so, go about this. So, so yeah. the, for mo- so this is kind of going to be improvised uh, teller stories, and you yeah. can play along and yeah. Do you, you want me to go first? Uh, yeah, I think if you go first, that'd be good. Okay, so I thought it would be really fun since we moved to North Carolina. I thought it would be really fun to start with one that takes place in North Carolina. Okay, so let me pull it up. Okay, it's a small town in Wilkes County, North Carolina, the kind of place where nothing ever happens and no one locks their doors. It's November 3rd, 1983. Leaves are changing. There's a slight chill in the air. Donna Campbell and Robert Allen were hiking through a mountain trail when they saw something disturbing peeking out from the ground. There lay the decomposing body of 17-year-old Carol Upchurch. When police arrived at the scene, it was determined she had been dead for no more than a week. Her body had been dumped there while the crime was committed somewhere else. She was clothed, so they did not suspect any sexual foul play. She did have bruising around her neck, though. The coroner determined she died from asphyxiation and discovered something else unsettling. 17-year-old Carol Upchurch was eight weeks pregnant. Carol's parents were devastated to learn the news of their daughter's death. Everyone the detectives talked to 
said she was the sweetest, kindest person you'd ever met. Everyone loved her. She was smart and beautiful. She had a bright future ahead of her, and she was applying for colleges. Except nobody knew about her pregnancy. Her friends told the detectives of the boy she had been seeing, 22-year-old John David Fisher. John David, however, was nowhere to be found. He had disappeared. By this point, police had gathered more information that further prioritized the need to locate him. John David had a history of violence and was dishonorably discharged from the military. He himself grew up in an alcoholic, abusive family, so he didn't have the best role models. After a week, John David was brought in after having been caught speeding, because we say this often, but murderers always get caught for the stupid things. Mm -hmm. Investigators sat him down to talk to him, offering a plea deal. He eventually confessed to killing Carol upon hearing about her wanting to keep the pregnancy. I mean, he's only 22, and he had his whole life ahead of him. He just did it without thinking, quote, unquote. <laughs> On February 19th, 1984, John David Fisher pled guilty to murder in the second degree. He was given life without parole. John David died in prison of a heart attack in two, two, uh, <laughs> I can't read what 2011 actually sounds like. 2011, <laughs> is that what it is? 2011, 2011. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, so John David died in prison of a heart attack in 2011. Interesting. So that's your story? That is the story, yes. <clears throat> All right. So if you, uh, listener, if you want to place your place your bet here, do that. If you think this is a true or false story. Circle the bubble A so, yeah. or B and put it on your Scantron, please. Yeah. And also give your explanation why in the box below. Yeah, because Scantrons have that. Yeah, some do. Uh, it depends do on they? the test. I don't think so. Well, uh, Put it on your separate piece of paper. Yeah, on your separate <laughs> piece of paper. That's right. I, I think... I'm going to lean toward it's, it is a false story. Okay. Um, my reasoning being, I think the they being caught for speeding is a giveaway. Yeah, that's what I'm going to go with. Final answer? That's my final answer. It is a false story. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Okay. So if you got that right, listener, you can give yourself an, a star. Mm-hmm. You can give yourself a gold star. Just one though. Just one though. I am not feeling good about this. I feel like I'm going to lose. <laughs> I know. I think you're. I think you'll do all right. <clears throat> all right. Anyways, uh, so I guess I'll go. I am also going to start in North Carolina. <laughs> <clears throat> At 24 years old, Kyle Feishman disappeared seemingly into thin air in Charlotte, North Carolina in 2007. Kyle went drinking with friends after going to see a comedy show from 10 p.m. to exactly 2.19 a.m. Kyle is seen in the bar and then is seen on CCTV leaving the bar. He then went to a pizza place and bought a couple slices. Uh, It was noted that he only had a couple dollars on him. He really didn't have much money on him. Then he was seen leaving the pizza place. It was also noted that all of this time he was making calls to family and friends although none of them were able to pick up. At 3.29 a.m., he made his last phone call to his friend Bruce, which was unanswered. After that, he was never seen or heard from again. It is also noted that he was seen dancing with some girls at the bar, and uh, he was also seen in an altercation with the men over the girls in the bar. That is all I have for that one. I think this is true. You think this is true? But now that I'm looking at your face, I think this is false. So what is your final answer? Well, now I don't know because I feel like your face just told me that it's false. 
listeners, is your is your vote placed here? Have you placed your vote, listeners? Good. It's your vote. I, I feel like the only thing that throws us off is like the North Carolina thing. Mm. Because I feel like this like this story is definitely a Reddit story mm-hmm. for sure, and I definitely can think of it being true. I just don't think that it's necessarily happened in North Carolina, and I think that's what's making me say false. Final answer. False. This is true. God damn it! That's what I was gonna say. <laughs> Yeah, it, it I'm gonna took... go back and say true. Okay, it was true. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, to give a little bit more, because mm-hmm. this one actually really did intrigue me when I was reading mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Because, uh, and also, you'll see with my my responses here, folks, is mm-hmm. that I'm gonna be relatively vague, until I'm not. I have a couple yeah. stories where I'm gonna get lengthy, but this one I wanted to keep a little bit vague because while there is a lot to this, mm-hmm. I think if I went more into detail, I think mm-hmm. it would have been easier to tell it was true. Yeah. Um, especially like. A couple other details, like his dad lived in Raleigh. Yeah. Oh. Um, and I, I don't know. I don't yeah. know. I think there are a lot of, like, Reddit stories where they just disappear. Mm-hmm. And so I think... This one was weird. Like, it didn't yeah. make any sense. Like, he was seen on CCTV. Well, it's funny that you tell that story because I have Ooh. a story for you. Also about a difference. Uh, disappearance. So this is the story about Bryce Lapisa. He was a good student as a freshman at Sierra College in Rockland, California. He got good grades and had some good friends. He had a roommate, a freshman roommate who became his best friend named Sean Dixon. He got a girlfriend named Kim Sly. And when he returned for sophomore year, Kim and Sean started using... Oh, no, I'm sorry. Kim and Sean noticed that he started using more drugs than ever. He was taking a ton of Vyvanse without having ADHD. And if anyone doesn't know, Vyvanse is basically Adderall. It's a mm. um, brand name of Adderall. And I think it's um like long release. Anyway, it's just it's just essentially Adderall. That's h- how it's released is just different than, than your generic Adderall. Anyway, um, but one of the things that Adderall does is it makes you, it, it makes it hard for you to sleep and it's a hunger suppressant. So it makes you, it's a stimulant, so it makes you awake, keeps you stimulated, um, and it, um, it's a hunger suppressant, and it can be make you depressed. So he was using it to stay up throughout the night. He probably was not eating well either. Again, this is Vyvanse. He was drinking a lot of alcohol and mixing that with Vyvanse, which is not good. We don't recommend that typically. And out of his first two weeks of school, he had only gone to two days worth of classes. He was manic and depressed. He broke up with his girlfriend through text saying, you'd be better off without me. He texted Sean saying, I love you, bro. Seriously, you're the best person I've ever met and you saved my soul. He then gave away a pair of diamond earrings. That was a family heir- uh, heirloom from his grandmother. August 28th, Sean calls Bryce mo- Bryce's mother warning her about the red flags. That same night, Bryce calls his mom. He had driven an hour and a half to Kim's house. They were fighting and Kim wouldn't let him have his keys. She told his mom it was not because they had broken up or that it was a lover's quarrel, but because of his behavior. She didn't think he was fit to drive. His mom convinces Kim to give Bryce his keys back and demands that he drives back to his home. And he leaves her, he leaves Kim's at house at 11.30 p.m. August 29th at 1 a.m., Bryce calls his mom. No one knows why. At 11 a.m. on August 29th, Karen, which is Bryce's mom, gets a call at 9 a.m. He used their roadside assistance. They figured he was well okay so at this point now his parents figured they were driving to their home in Laguna Niguel which is a seven hour drive but if he left at 11 30 p.m from Kim's house he would have been there by now 
At 9 a.m., when he had stopped for roadside assistance, he was in Buttonwillow, three and a half hours from home. Now 12 p.m., why wasn't he still home? Karen calls Christian, the roadside assistance person, who gave Bryce gas. He said Bryce was pulled off to the side of the road near a rest stop, and he seemed fine. Karen asked Christian if he could drive back out there and ask if anyone saw anything, but he didn't have to ask. Bryce was still parked in the same spot as he was four hours ago. Bryce said he was just trying to get some sleep and he was driving home. Karen begs him to leave his phone on. Expecting him to be home by four, at 6 p.m., Bryce's parents file a missing persons complaint. When the police follow his last phone ping, it leads them only eight miles away from where he was last seen. But he is sitting there alive and well. He is tested but found not to be under the inf- any influence. An hour after the police leave, Christian finds him in the same spot. He tells him, you for real need to leave and I'm going to follow you. He follows him long enough that he believes he's actually going home. Rice is now in communication with his parents and claims he should be home around August 30th. 3.30 a.m., 25 hours after he was supposed to have left on what should have been a seven-hour drive. He calls at 2.09 a.m. and says he is too tired to finish the last hour and a half. He needs to sleep, he claims. At 8 a.m., Bryce's parents open their door in response to their doorbell having been rung. It's Highway Patrol. Bryce's car has been found crashed on its side at the bottom of a 25 25- foot embankment near access road to castaic lake the back window was kicked open and bryce was nowhere to be found he left his phone wallet laptop and all the rest of his belongings there were a few drops of blood in and outside of the car police find evidence of him driving in circles and then accelerating prior to crashing leading them to believe it was an attempted suicide dogs divers and helicopters were sent to search for him but lost track of him at a truck stop no one has seen him all right, listeners, place your bets now. True or false? I think I am also going to say this one's false. Final answer? Yes. This one is true. Ah. This is one that I thought you would, um, you might know because know. this is a Reddit one. Yeah, I, I didn't scroll that far into the Reddit. This one's bizarre to me because, again, like yours, so many people saw, saw him. him. Yeah. So many people. So the question is... Like, what happened to him? Like, his mom and dad refused to believe that he was depressed or Mm -hmm. that he was on drugs or alcohol. But his roommates and his girlfriend would say, no, he was depressed and he was on drugs and alcohol. Mm -hmm. And I think that he got mixed up in, like, a drug ring or something. Mm -hmm. And he was being threatened and... He had to get out of his life. You know what I mean? Yeah. And at the truck stop, he probably got into a truck. Someone was willing to drive him out of his life. Yep. And restart. Someone did end up claiming they saw him in Oregon at some point hmm. because he's very distinguishable. He has like bright red hair. He's hmm. got a very distinct like jawline and like he's so he's very he's a very distinct looking person. Like you would know him if you saw him. Um. So they claimed they had saw him in Oregon, but they didn't know they had saw him until after like well after. Yeah. Because they didn't know he was a missing person. Yeah. But his bizarre behavior, like, it definitely wasn't him. Like, like some people, I think there, there are theories that make it seem like there wasn't anything weird going on. And I'm like, no, there clearly was, like, I, I think he was being threatened mm-hmm. or extorted or something. Yeah. You know. Interesting. It is interesting, though, that nobody knows what is said on that one a.m. phone call with his mom mm. because everything else is recorded. Yeah. They'll say 
all the other phone calls, they'll talk about anything the phone calls. Um, he had told his mom when he was leaving Kim's house that he had to talk to her. Mm. Like, he had to talk to her in person about something. So I'm curious what the 1 a.m. call was. The other thing that I find weird is that if you, like, their his parents were so worried about him, right? But if your kid, like, after, like, like, I understand the first time being like, oh, your kid is at this, like, truck stop, hasn't left, right? And he claims he's just tired and he needs to sleep and then he still has to come home, right? Mm-hmm. But after the second time, like, like, you would, why wouldn't you just drive out there? Mm-hmm. Like, it's a three and a half hour drive. Why wouldn't you just drive out there? Yeah. Like, he's clearly acting weird. He didn't, he said he would come home and he didn't. Just drive out there. He's clearly acting weird. Just say, mm-hmm. no, 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 you stay put. I'm coming to you. Yeah. Like, that's what I would do. Yeah. Right? Like, uh, just absolutely. yeah, just stay there. I'm coming to you. Yeah. So, it's just a weird case to me. Like, I almost think the parents are kind of sus, too. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Okay, anyway, sorry. You're next. No, 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 no. That's all good. All right. It was a calm, sunny day in Gardner, Massachusetts in 1974. Julian Wells, an ordinary 17-year-old guy who was working at a local consignment shop. Uh, everyone was uh, going well for him that day. He had a date. Uh, after he finished work, so he was excited to get off quickly. What he did not know was that he was going to get off early, but not for the reason he wanted. At around 1.30 p.m. in the afternoon, Julian welcomed four police officers into the shop. The officer walked up to the counter and asked if he was Julian Wells. He answered that he was, in fact, Julian Wells. The police asked him to come in for questioning, to to which he obliged. When he was brought in by the police, they asked him where he had been on May 23rd, 1974. He said that he was working at the shop that day. They had asked him if he recognized the name Sidney Orlo. He said that he did recognize the name and that she was a student in his class back in school. When asked what his relationship with her was, he did say he had a uh, fling with her one time. They then asked if he had seen her or been in contact with her that day, and he replied with no. After the interrogation, the police believed they had enough information and arrested Julian for the murder of Sidney Orlo. What the police did not tell him was that they had video evidence of him and Sidney in a back alley behind the bowling alley in the neighboring town of Westminster. He was sentenced to 18 years in prison, not until three years after his sentencing did it come out that a man who matched Julian completely would be tried for a separate murder, and it would be found out that this man was in fact Julian's twin brother who he did not know about. This man, Kyle Dunson, uh, was separated from Julian at birth and was an identical twin to Julian. It was then also found that Kyle was also responsible for the death of Sydney as well. Julian would then be released from prison and paid $5,000 in reparations. Kyle would be sentenced to two accounts of second-degree manslaughter. This sounds so false, it sounds true, right? I have two things that I think tip me off that it's false though like false false one who pays him five thousand dollars in reparations Mm -hmm. right like i don't think any government's gonna pay five thousand because our government sucks yeah and two what so he was charged for what crimes again like what so what what was he um how they found him he was accused for what the first time murder of another murder of another person yeah so i think in charging him murder in the second degree for both accounts i think that's inaccurate mm. because second second degree means you have no intention it means you didn't intend to you did it like accident like you didn't go in with the intention of murder mm-hmm. but i think after a second murder then one of those has to be intentional mm-hmm so I think two second-degree murders, like one of those has to be a first-degree count, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's false. Uh, I totally yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was good, though, yeah, because yeah, yeah. I really liked 
I like the twin, twin the brother. The twin theory, yeah. yeah. Because, like, that sounds like something that, like, almost could happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what yeah. I was going for. That's what I was going for. Yeah. It, it definitely was the reparations. Yeah. And then also the the, the counts. Okay. I figured that was what it was going to be. I, I couldn't yeah. quite figure out what to do for that. Yeah. But, anyways, we'll, we'll figure it out. Okay. June 22nd, 2007. There's a cold rain falling on the mourners with their picturesque black umbrellas gathered around the coffin. They're saying their last goodbyes to the man in the coffin. A good brother, a good father, a good son, so on. Two women bump their hands against each other as they uh, they drape their flowers over the coffin. The crowd dispersed and that was that. Except it wasn't. At least not for the Oakland County Sheriff's Department, who were searching for the man who broke in and shot Mr. Alexander Brook and robbed his house. The city of Birmingham was a generally safe and pleasant place to live. To have him roam freely without justice simply wouldn't do. Saturday, June 16th, around 10.30 p.m., Lucy Brooks makes a call to 911 frantic. Her husband has been shot and her house was a mess. Police and paramedics were dispatched, but Mr. Brooks was declared dead on arrival. A pale, shaky Mrs. Brooks tries to explain what happened. She had just come back from dropping the kids off at her parents' house. They were all supposed to stay the weekend there, but Mr. Brooks had a, quote, work thing come up. So she decided she would also stay back um, so that they could have some alone time. But when she returned, she came home to his brain splattered on the floor. Hmm. Mrs. Brooks had not had a moment to look around to see what was taken, but the police decided it's a robbery gone wrong. He'd been shot by a 32 caliber, but other than that, there wasn't much to go off of. Six months go by without any progress. There's a change in leadership, and a new detective from Ohio takes over the case. He immediately starts to question the initial investigator's lack of investigating. The way his body was positioned didn't make any sense. He didn't seem to be defensive or trying to flee. He knew the person. The new detective starts asking about Mr. Brooks' character. Most people concurred that he was a good guy and all that blah blah. But then he met Gregory Owens, Alexander's closest friend. He confessed that Alexander maybe wasn't what he appeared to be. He had painted this perfect life with his wife and two kids, but he had several mistresses. He had many, quote, work things that he should have outgrown for a man almost in his 40s. Owen said Mrs. Brooks was not aware of any of his extracurricular activities. As the detective looked into the associates of his escapades, he found a surprising link. 23-year-old Stacy Armstrong was said to be the most recent mistress of Mr. Brooks. When interviewed, she swore she had no idea he had a family or a wife. She had never been to his house. They always met at hotels. But the detective later learned she had lied. Pings off her and and Lucy Brooks' phones match locations on five instances. He later was able to find CCTV footage at one of the coffee shops they met at. Here was the puzzle he put together. Stacy genuinely didn't know about Alexander's family. So when she learned, she went to Lucy and shared everything she had learned. Angry, they teamed up to get their revenge. Lucy would get the kids out of the house and set the stage. On that Saturday night, they confronted Alexander. Stacy pulled the trigger, shooting him point blank. Lucy and Stacy were tried separately and were charged with first degree murder and received life without parole. The Brooks kids were given custody to Lucy's parents. Hmm. Our listener, place your vote. I think this one's true. Final answer? Yeah. This is false. I knew it. Should have said it. This is based off of um, Carrie Underwood's uh, Two Black Cadillacs Nice. Song nice. Wow. That I just made up a whole story off of. Nice. That's, from, that's impressive. 
All right. All right. I'm going to throw in another. This is a shorter one. I promise to not all of my stories. I got like two more that I swear not all of them are going to be missing people. Apparently, I just like missing people cases. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Anyways, we'll move on. <laughs> uh, with that being said, an elderly couple... Charles and Catherine Rober were leaving from their vacation in Florida. This was a routine for them, and they drove the 1,400 miles back to their home in New York. During the trip back home, they made a stop at a Holiday Inn in Brunswick, Georgia, on April 8, 1980. After checking into the hotel, they seemingly disappeared along with their 1979 Lincoln Continental and thousands of dollars in jewelry. After four days, it was finally noted that they had indeed gone missing, but it was too late. A search was issued, and they and their car were never seen again. The only clues is that they did leave some items in their hotel. This included some of their luggage, a bottle of scotch, and some financial documents. That is what I have. I do believe this is true. Okay, well, what is your reasoning here? I think some i don't know something about the, like the i something about the car just makes me think it's true yeah it's true yeah <laughs> the car it's this one's mm-hmm. also weird to me because like mm-hmm. nothing has been found not their 1979 lincoln continental mm-hmm. yeah it's weird that's weird some people say it might be because it, it was at that time mm-hmm. it was like a, a popular car a more mm-hmm. popular car and they did have a lot of expensive jewelry on them Mm-hmm. So potentially someone in Florida, like, stalked them back. That's wild. But, yeah. That is so wild. Right? All right. All right. April 30th, 1990, in Oklahoma City. Three guys approached what they thought was debris. It was not. 21-year-old Tanya Hughes was rushed to the hospital after a hit and run. Upon arrival at the hospital, caretakers notice old bruises and suspect foul play. Tanya is married to an older man and has a two-year-old son. CPS is called. Tanya unfortunately does not make it. CPS and detectives suspect two-year-old son, Michael, is not Clarence Hughes' biological son. Clarence Hughes being her husband. With the bruises and him not being bio daddy, Michael went to a foster family. That was it. Case closed. Until Michael was six years old, Clarence had taken Michael at gunpoint from school. It was a kidnapping case that, that opened a nasty can of worms. Clarence Hughes' real name was Franklin Delano Floyd. Floyd had used many aliases in the past, such as Warren Marshall, Brandon Williams, Trenton Davis, Preston Morgan, Kingfish Floyd, and of course, Clarence Hughes. Not only did he have a history of identity fraud, but also of kidnapping and rape. His first conviction was when he kidnapped a four-year-old girl and sexually assaulted her. He was sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison. Floyd was then sentenced to, to 52 years in prison for kidnapping Michael. Michael was never found. Floyd later admitted to shooting him in the back of the head twice and killing him. And while news of this broke, a friend of Tanya's from high school called. This friend needed to set the record straight. Tanya's name wasn't Tanya, but Sharon Marshall. And that Clarence Floyd guy wasn't her husband, but her father. She remembered a sleepover she had with Sharon, where Floyd raped Sharon at gunpoint. It was apparently a frequent occurrence. Sharon was excited to go to college on a full scholarship for aerospace engineering, but her father wouldn't let her go when she ended up pregnant at 18. He took her to Florida where he made her work as an exotic dancer. He exploited her friendships and it was there that he met Cheryl Ann Camesso. Detectives would later piece together and convict Floyd for her death, giving him the death sentence in Florida. 
Franklin Floyd was a sick man who sold and exploited his daughter everywhere they moved. He changed their identities time after time. He assaulted her repeatedly, controlled her and her son. She had two other children that she was forced to give up for adoption. She had no freedom in her life. And when she tried to escape with her two-year-old son, an alleged secret boyfriend, we can assume he killed her and her son. That was when it occurred to detectives, if Lloyd was that terrible of a person and given his history, was Sharon even his daughter? Looking at pictures and prison time, ages and dates didn't match up. Sure enough, under the name Brandon Williams, Floyd had kidnapped Sharon and her three siblings, their mother, whom he had dated. He only wanted smart, beautiful Sharon and left the other three behind. In 2014, investigators finally learned Sharon's real, real name, Susan Marie Savakis. She died never knowing who she really was. You know, this is one of those things where, like, I really don't want it to be true. Like, that's messed up. Right. But I also think it's, like, like so crazy that it is true. I'm going to say it's true. It is true. Yeah. It's really, really sad. I was telling Holly that I watched this one right after watching, because this one's a Netflix special, so I also thought you might have seen this one, like, at least, like, the um, trailer for I hope it. I haven't watched... Uh, sorry. What? Hmm? Um... I watched the, so I literally just watched Night Stalker, Mm. which was about a serial killer in, I think, California, who did some really messed up shit. Like, I've watched a lot of serial killer ones at this point. And, you know, I mean, serial killers and murderers in general are obviously messed with people and, you know, lots of messed with people. But this one was really particularly bad because he essayed a lot of people. Mm-hmm. anyone old women young women men didn't matter who you were and he killed anyone like he didn't so normally you know um serial killers have a type you know they profile mm-hmm. and so it makes it a li- at least a little bit easier for police to protect people or to at least kind of like get their mo this person didn't have an mo because he would literally go after anyone mm-hmm. and it was like basically every night that he had a victim yeah. which usually a serial killer has a lag time of what detective hopes is like a week or at least six mm-hmm. weeks or you know six months he was doing this like nightly yeah. and it would be anyone men women old young didn't matter and i thought that was really messed up like yeah. i thought that was for real messed up and then i watched this one right after and i was like no i actually think this one was more messed up yeah. <laughs> like when you watch the movie like you learn one thing and you're like wow that is messed up and then you just you just keep learning things about how sad this poor girl's life was mm-hmm. and how demented like it's just so tragic like she yeah. lives such a tragic life yeah. and they never found michael's body mm. not that i'm like one of those people who is like you can't rest it you know you need you need the body to rest in peace but like just never like not having that closure just kind of yeah. like it is interesting though because how he, how he said he killed Michael is also how he killed Cheryl. Mm-hmm. And they did find Cheryl's body. Yeah. So, okay, I'm sorry. No, no, that's all good. All right, I have two more. I do not have any more. All right, so we'll do one more. Do okay. One more. I was like, I have the one that I told you last night, and I can just repeat that one. No, 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 that's all good. I mean, honestly, you probably could. I don't remember if that's true or false, to be honest with you. I could give you a general one, too, though. It's, it's all good. On December 28th, 2017... Andrew Finch opened his door to flashing red and blue lights 
only to be fatally shot mere seconds after. On this day, an innocent man was killed over dispute about the online video game Call of Duty over a loss of $1.50. Tyler Bar Barris, 28, sorry, 26, a homeless man in Los Angeles, California, was taken in and sentenced to 20 years in prison in 2018 for the crime of involuntary manslaughter and is known to be the mastermind of dozens of incidents of swatting. For many years, Tyler created a name for himself online on Twitter. He went by the username Swatistic over his ability to swat people and swat people in places. Two gamers were using a Call of Duty site called UMG Gaming in which you could win real world money for winning matches. The two gamers who were on the same team got into a dispute after a team killing incident, which lost them the game and the $1.50 prize. This caused one teammate to threaten swatting in which the other gave an address and called bull. Unfortunately, the address given was the wrong address. The teammate who threatened the swatting knew Tyler Paris and asked him to make the call. Tyler obliged and told police in Wichita that he had accidentally shot his dad in an argument and was holding a gun at his mom. Police quickly sent troops, which were not SWAT members. Andrew Finch, who opened the door, uh, was asked to put his hands on his head. After going to put his hands on his head, he stopped for a brief moment and was then shot and killed by an officer. After the event settled, Tyler Barris was arrested and sentenced to 20 years. The gamer who asked Tyler to SWAT was sentenced to 15 months in jail and two years probation. The other gamer was sentenced to $1,000 in damages. The police officer who made the shot was not sentenced to anything. Oh yeah, I think this is true. You think this is true? I, I think, I mean, police killing people, getting, getting off scot-free, people getting accused to didn't do it, right? Mm -hmm. That's what I understood? Mm-hmm. Getting, like, sentenced for a ridiculously long time, right? That's what I understand. The... So, this is true. I'll, I'll give that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I was like, when a police officer shoots someone and gets off... If, if you had said the police officer, like... Got sentenced. Got sentenced, I would have been like, no, 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 that's false. Mm -hmm. That's false. Yeah, but, but mm -mm. This is also a Netflix special, which was like... I, was, I don't know if you caught me before. I was like, mm -hmm. ooh, I have another Netflix special. I did not see this one, and I have yeah. not seen the trailer for it. This is the so. uh, Netflix internet series, something about mm -hmm. internet. Oh, okay. Um, this was an episode about swatting, um, which is when, if you don't know what swatting is, it's when you call the police and get them to swat a person for something they're not actually doing. Oh. It's when you make a false threat. Oh, jeez. Yeah. So Tyler Barish is not a good dude. He's actually a really bad dude. Yikes. Um, and so his sentencing of 20 years is actually, it was the highest for mm -hmm. this crime. Mm -hmm. Oh, nice. But he had done it like 50 times to uh, separate okay, places. Okay, so that's not enough. No, obviously. But the uh, two gamers, I thought, got reasonable. The one the one that made the call and told Tyler to commit the crime, mm -hmm. he was sentenced to two years, pretty much. And the other one that really wasn't too involved, he was sentenced, he was fined $1,000, which I think is reasonable. What was up with the homeless man, though, again? That was the guy that was making the calls, swatting. Oh. He, there's a whole story about how he was doing this, was he was going to his library and making threat calls, and that's how he was also making money. He was making money by doing this. Oh. Because um, his grandma kicked him out. Yeah. He was living with his grandma, and he, she kicked him out. Um, and then, yeah, the police officer that made the shot, even though there was... There was confirmation that the, the shooter was still on the line, mm -hmm. and the man that walked out was not holding a phone or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And yeah, police shot him, completely got away with it. So really, all parties that, you know, for the most part, mm -hmm. there is justice, you know, except for the person that actually killed the guy. Yeah, An of innocent course. man, but whatever. 
Do you see the um, thing on TikTok where it's like, where the news is trying, the, there's a police who shot, I can't remember if it's in New York, I, I feel, I want to say it's in New York, but I can't remember where it was, where a police officer, sir, shot a kid who was playing. Oh, with a water gun, With yeah. a water gun that fell out of the car. Uh-huh. It did any, he wasn't even playing with it, and the kid, the, the police officer shot him in, like, the face or something. Mm-hmm. And they, and the, like, all the news stations and police officers are like, this, the, they were playing with a dangerous, you know, water gun. And this is why it's important. And you're like, oh, but real guns aren't dangerous. Like, your gun that you mm-hmm. used to shoot them in the face wasn't? <laughs> like, I'm sorry. Yep. Why do we need police officers again? <laughs> Tell me. Mm-hmm. Anyways, we didn't really have many false crimes. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was more true crimes than it was false crimes. But whatever. Um, I tried to keep, I had a 50-50, so I did two and two. I thought my other false crime. I'll, I'll give you my other false crime. I yeah, didn't yeah, make I can I can give my and the third one that I had given you last night was a true crime, and I can share. That I didn't one want to use well. this one because it was also a missing person, and I was like, I already have two. <gasps> but anyways, I thought it was a fun story. Chester McHenry, a 37-year-old constructor construction worker in Cork Island, was seen staying a bit later at a site, which uh, while most of the crew went to get lunch, his friend Jeffrey Dyer said that Chester had a spot that he always went to for lunch, but noted that that day he had not seen Chester in that spot. When the crew rolled back in, nobody was able to find Chester. They sent a search party out, but found nothing. No one in the city had any inclination about his whereabouts, and he was pronounced missing on September 12th, 2000. It is important to state that there was wet cement laid that some say he may have fallen into. There was also a small wooded park nearby that also led to a lake where he could have been fallen in and got pulled downstream. But as of today, he's still not been found. I thought that was well done. I don't know. That's just me. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, do, do you want to go about your... Yeah, I can share the cold case. Yeah. So I, I included a cold case. I tried not to do an unsolved one and I ended up doing an unsolved one. But um, okay. So this is on June 26, 1987, Columbus, Ohio. Brought from still segregated KKK, Alabama, Anime Florence was about to be picked up by her sister and brother-in-law, Lily and Alonzo, to go shopping. Anime screams... Alonso goes to try to kick down the door, but as he does, a woman covered in blood exits the door. He grabs her arm, holding onto her tight. She wiggles herself out, the blood slippery like butter. (laughs) (laughs) Alonso runs, but returns after losing her. He returns only to hear her say that this woman, who had just entered her house, beaten her, and murdered her, was a total stranger. There's blood everywhere. They comb everything, but focus on their... One only true clue, which is a partial bloody fingerprint on the wall that she made as she was running out. They don't have DNA evidence or the technology we do have today. This was the 80s. Witnesses at the time said that a girl was going around asking for money, saying it was for a funeral. The detectives had nothing, really. Not until a tip was called in anonymously. The caller said they had been at a party and overheard a woman talking about stabbing another woman. Danita Campbell. Caller claimed they went to school together. After being pushed by the police, he finally gave up his name. Odell, he said, and then he also gave up his social security number and his birthday. He came into headquarters and agreed to wear a wire to catch Danita, but disappeared shortly after. The case goes cold. August 27, 2012. 27 years after the murder. New detectives are assigned to the case. New detectives review the evidence, looking for anything the old detectives missed. They listened to Odell's tapes and learned learned about a social security check in her purse. Only the killer would know, proving Odell had to know the killer. He wasn't a prank witness. Reviewing the pictures, 
the detectives found a mayo jar that was seemingly out of place. Danita perhaps grabbed this um, as a way of attacking. The mayo jar just so happened to have been collected as evidence by the original detectives. Sure enough, with modern technology, they are able to get a full fingerprint off of the mayo jar. They learned Danita now has a search warrant out for jaywalking. Murderers always get caught for the little mistakes. And she is brought in and fingerprinted. She is interviewed while they compare the prints. It's not a match. So if, if you know Odell knew vital information, he was either in on it or lying. They found his new address and went to interview him. They brought the tapes, played it in for him, and asked, that's you, right? He responded, yeah, that's my address, that's my social security, and that's my birthday, but that's not my voice. He reveals he's illiterate and that he had a cousin named Chris who would fill out all of his employment applications for him, applications that would give him access to this information. When Odell went to headquarters, he never had to show ID. It was Chris the whole time. The detectives go to meet Chris. He felt guilty knowing what he had done. Danita had things she was guilty of, so he felt fine with her going down for it. He didn't want to give up who he had promised he wouldn't snitch on. After much pressure, he finally, finally gave up her name. Zena Robertson. She owed a drug dealer money. She went door-to-door asking for money. Anime had given her a couple dollars, but she saw more money in the purse. Desperation took over, and that's when she attacked. August 25th, 2014, 27 years after the murder, Zena Robertson was sentenced to 15 years to life. So that is true or false crime. Yeah. So if you would like us to do a false crime podcast um, where we either improv stories like yeah, Mad Lib, the you know the Mabel Butterbottom story, the one and only. The Sorry, one that's, and a only Mabel. that's a true crime. That's a true crime. Yeah, that was bad. a true crime. Um, and we didn't start with this is a false crime story. Uh-huh. Therefore, um, it's a true crime story. Th- therefore, it's a true crime. But if you want us to do false crime stories, uh, we can either make a separate podcast for that, or we can mm-hmm. just keep it as a, a mini series on this one. Yeah. Um, just let us know what you think. Once again, I'm gonna. I don't do this often, but I'm gonna do it again. Uh, if uh, I'm gonna sponsor our subreddit uh, r slash tubecast and the discord tubecast um, feel free to join and interject with what you think uh, let us know your thoughts and opinions mm-hmm. and uh, thank you for listening mm-hmm. yeah and if you would call this number on the screen our phones are waiting for your donations <laughs> thank you very much.